From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast. Today, we are running a conversation between Amber Hikes, the ACLU's Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and disability rights icon, Judy Human. The conversation is on CVS versus Doe, a case that the Supreme Court was set to hear on December 8th. The case threatened to attack the very foundation of disability rights laws, specifically by threatening Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. If CVS had pursued this case and won, people with disabilities would no longer have the ability to sue for discrimination that is based out of ignorance as opposed to animus. In this conversation, Judy discusses the disability rights laws we fought for and won and explains why disability discrimination is consistently questioned by both the general public and the courts. Yesterday, we received breaking news. CVS reached a settlement in their case, likely thanks to the pressure of disability advocates over the past few weeks. Though this case will no longer be heard by the court, we're running this conversation that we recorded late last week because the argument that CVS presented has been seen in other copycat arguments in different cases across the country. This issue is likely to get to the Supreme Court in some form soon. For more information on all of these cases, follow the ACLU across social and subscribe to our email list. We promise to keep you updated. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Amber Hikes and Judy Human. Thank you so much for joining us, Judy. So this case is very concerning, and I'm going to get into that and the reasons why. But first, I really want to lay some foundational groundwork for folks. 44 years ago, you and hundreds of others led the iconic 504 sit-in at a federal building in San Francisco, fighting for the Carter administration to enshrine Section 504 into the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 the first federal civil rights law. You protested for a whole month before the Carter administration finally implemented Section 504, which of course became the foundation for the landmark American with Disabilities Act, the ADA as we know it. So can you tell us what's Section 504 and why is it important? Section 504 says, if you're a recipient of federal financial assistance, you may not discriminate against one based on their disability. And that really was a momentous statute and the regulations that subsequently came out after working on this from 1973 to 1977 was a real learning opportunity, particularly for the disability community, because work that was being done in the area of disability previously was either focusing on medical issues, cure of disability, not a rights-based approach. And many of us who at that point were younger, not to say that they weren't also older people, particularly disabled veterans who were very involved, but many of us really, while we'd studied a little bit about how a law was made, really didn't understand the process, how to get involved with the development of regulations, how to um, write comments when the proposed regulations came out, how to go and speak at a meeting where we would be up against universities and hospitals and others who would be speaking against 504 and wanting to make the regulations as limited as possible. And the reason why these demonstrations came out, there are many reasons, but let me just say, for me, the simplest one to understand is 
between 1973, when the law was put into place, and 77, when the regulations finally came out, there'd been a significant amount of compromising that had been done on the part of the disability community and others, but I think particularly on the part of disabled people. And so when we saw that there was serious thought being made to weaken the proposed regulations, that's when people really acted. And the demonstrations were all over the United States. Now, let me say that, you know, really some of the historical points that are important for people to understand, and still to a large degree today, is that there is, for many people, stigma and shame associated with disabilities, whether they're visible or invisible. And so getting disabled people to come out, and even if you use a wheelchair or you're deaf or you're blind, to speak up about something that could affect you in a negative way is difficult. Because if you've not allowed people to know that you have diabetes or you have anxiety or you have depression or a learning disability or an intellectual disability, whatever it may be, coming out and saying, no, this is really important because these are the types of discrimination that we have been experiencing over the course of our lives. And that I think is a pivotal part of the discussion then, and it's equally pivotal today for people to really understand the types of discrimination that people are facing. Judy, thank you so much for that context um, and for really peeling back the curtain for us around what it took to actually get there to that protest and really what was sacrificed, the kind of bravery that folks had to have in order to speak up and really fight this stigma and the shame as you were talking about. I'm actually going to ask you to go a little bit more in, in that direction. You talked to us about what it looked like between 73 and, and 77, but I'm interested in what did life look like before Section 504, particularly for folks with disabilities? Yeah, so I'm almost 70. Oh my God. I'm almost 74. I'm a proud almost 74. Um, and I, I say that because, you know, we've got the stigma of aging, uh, which, you know, those of us as we're getting older are also fighting against. But I had polio in 1949. I was 18 months old. I learned when I was an adult that a doctor when I was two had recommended that my parents put me in an institution and would basically tell that they could go ahead with their life and that it was gonna be difficult because I had a disability. My parents said no to that, thankfully, but that didn't mean that the system was really there to help support them raising me. But my parents really, like many other parents, weren't even asking for anything. And my mom took me to school when I was five years old like all parents were doing. And she took me to the school in the neighborhood. There were steps, but there were no alternatives. And she pulled my wheelchair up the steps and the principal informed her that I could not register to go to school there because I was a fire hazard. So I had no kindergarten. The Board of Education in Brooklyn sent a teacher to my house but only for two and a half hours a week, one day for an hour, one day for an hour and a half. That was it. And then in the middle of the fourth grade, when I was nine years old, 
my mom got a call that there was a program, Health Conservation 21, and they were going down the waiting list. So there was a waiting list. And that in and of itself should be something that people recognize because there were no other waiting lists for other children. You were five, you had to register to go to school. It was probably a violation of the law if you didn't take your child to school. But here it is, I'm nine years old, and I have to go for an admission screening, which meant that my mother had to take me to school every day for five days, bring me and take me home. She had to stay there because I needed assistance in going to the bathroom. And although there were staff there who could help, they were not supposed to during that screening week. And literally, they could have said that I could not go to the school, but they didn't. So I was accepted into these classes. The school was for non-disabled children. There were like four floors plus a basement. And the basement had the classes for disabled kids. And the basement had the cafeteria and gymnasium. But we never ate lunch with the non-disabled children. We didn't go to gym together. Our classes, interestingly, for special ed, were racially integrated classes. The school itself was basically a white school because it drew from the neighborhoods. And that was really that period of time as I was getting older and able to be more reflective with other friends who had disabilities, we were like beginning to question, why was this going on? Because the teaching we were getting was quite inferior. But then moving it forward, when I went to university, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. My friends encouraged me not to tell the agency that was gonna pay for me to go to university not to tell them that I wanted to be a teacher because I would have to show them that there was someone using a wheelchair who had been hired using a wheelchair who was actually a teacher. And I didn't know anybody. And so I filed for my teaching license in Brooklyn, had to take an oral, a written, and a medical exam. The, all three of them were offered in inaccessible buildings I had to be carried up and down the stairs, and I was failed on my medical exam. I was failed because in writing, they said, paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae of poliomyelitis. Now, that was a big shock to me, but I had this little interesting story. I had called the ACLU when I was a freshman or a sophomore in college telling them that I thought this could happen. And they told me that I should just go ahead, take my classes, apply. If there was a problem, I should contact them, Right. which I did. So I called the ACLU in New York. I explained what happened. And they said they would get back to me. And they did. And this is the old ACLU, but I think it's an important story. They said there was no need for me to come down because they did not believe that I'd been discriminated against, that I was denied my job for medical reasons. Now, I want to say that in 2021 this year, I got an apology letter from ACLU, which really brought tears to my eyes. Quite frankly, that it took 50 years for this issue 
because I've spoken about it a lot. But the reason I related to the stories that we're discussing now is people who understand discrimination in many areas are still learning. But I think when looking at the purpose of this discussion today around CVS, what we're really looking at is historic and still not removed barriers that people with all forms of disability face. And it may be out of ignorance, it may be intentional, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if the discrimination is resulting in limited opportunities for people to live their lives like other people. That's right. And Judy, your story just so brilliantly and concisely lays out the impacts on education, on socialization, even access to resources that non-disabled folks have, even access to employment, right? You laid that out with that story. And this is these are the impacts of stigma, of shame, of discrimination, right, of ableism. And you made that so very clear with your own story and narrative. And so I, I thank you for that. And I, of course, reiterate the apology, the long overdue apology that you received from the ACLU just this year for, frankly, the discrimination that we committed against you during that time. And so I'm just so incredibly sorry. I'm glad that you received that apology. Again, it is so long overdue. But thank you for the lesson. Thank you for reminding us that this kind of discrimination and stigma still exists and uh, reminding us that we need to continue to combat it. The point here is how we as disabled people have still been so invisible. And that invisibility meaning in schools, on the streets, in the workforce, in our communities overall. And laws like 504 and the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and many others have slowly been allowing us to gain the education that we need, remove the barriers that exist so that we can more readily be coming out of the closet. And more and more of us feel that we can speak up and out and be our true selves. I want to give another example around the kinds of discrimination that existed in the past. We all know that Rosa Parks was denied the right to be on a bus and sit in the front because of her race. We know that the boycott had a tremendous impact, resulting in the policies being changed. We also know that Rosa Parks, if she was in a wheelchair, would still not be able to get on that bus if it wasn't for laws that have required that we look at our systems differently and do the possible when people were saying it was impossible. And I think this is a very important point for people to realize that when we were around the country fighting for accessible transportation, there were many people who were saying, why? We don't see people. They're not going to use it. And we were saying, we're here. We can't use it. We can't get across streets because there aren't curb cuts. We can't do so many things then that we're able to do now. But the thought of removing Section 504 from the laws that we have to protect us and to allow us to move forward, that is what's really incomprehensible. And I think CVS, whether they intended 
or not to move this case forward as they have clearly could result in significant harm to disabled individuals all across the United States. I want to move us into this conversation about the CBS case because I feel like it kind of perfectly outlines um, exactly what you're saying here. So there's been this abundance of cases that have been raised by disabled folks against corporations and even the government for discrimination, right? And so here we are in, in CBS versus Doe, and the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not Section 504 and, by extension, Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act if it allows the plaintiffs to go ahead with suing CVS, alleging disability discrimination based on the disparate impact clause. What I want people to understand are some simple facts. And that relates back to the example that I gave around the bus. And it relates to things like putting forth a policy that says no animals allowed. No animals allowed except for people who have disabilities and need those animals in order to be able, if they're blind, for example, they need their guide dogs. But if, in fact, a policy were to come forward that didn't have that inclusion, then a ban on animals would be something that people would say, that means everybody. And that would be very detrimental. You know, when I was thrown out of a restaurant or where there was an attempt to throw me and my friends out of a restaurant, because we were wheelchair users. They didn't because we said, call the police. When I lived in Berkeley and a group of us using wheelchairs were having difficulty with the movie theater because the movie theater was not removing seats that would allow us to stay in our wheelchairs. And they were insisting that we had to get out of our wheelchairs because if we stayed in our wheelchairs, we would be a fire hazard. And we said, we are a fire hazard if we have to come out of our wheelchairs because we cannot transfer. And those types of real life situations are an example that came at the joint hearings for the ADA in 1989, where a mother spoke that her young daughter, they lived in a rural area. There was one movie theater And that one movie theater had one movie in it. And the mother dropped the daughter off and gave her a dollar to buy the ticket. The daughter had cerebral palsy and a speech disability. When the daughter went to get their ticket, they were denied the ticket because they said they didn't know what this young girl wanted. Well, there was no way that they didn't know what this young girl wanted. She had a dollar It was a movie theater, one movie, ticket cost a dollar. So these kinds of discriminatory actions that now could not happen or there would be a remedy if it did happen, these are all very important day-to-day life issues. So we should not have to demonstrate that there was intent to discriminate. Because in the area of disability, much of what goes on may not be quote unquote intentional. The refusal to build a ramp, is that intentional? Just like with the example I gave about the bus before the ramps and the struggle that we had to get the bus companies to agree that they would support lifts on buses. It was the same thing. Why do we need ramps? 
Why do we need wider bathroom doors? Why do we need captioning? Why do we need any of these things? That is what is at risk here. Exactly. Thank you so much, Judy. This, what you're making is this distinction between disparate impact, right, and intent. And it's incredibly important when we're talking about the CVS case, because in this case, CVS is saying, unless you can prove malintent, then this case shouldn't be allowed to stand, right? They're saying that their specialty pharmacy program is facially neutral. And because of this neutrality, the plaintiffs shouldn't be able to sue. And this is very concerning, right? The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has condemned CVS's claim, but then CVS appealed, and now it's going to the Supreme Court. From the disability community's perspective, the issue is very narrow. We're not getting in the middle of what's going on around the particular case. What we are saying is, 504 did not need to be a part of their case. They included it. In including it and the court selecting it, that puts us in jeopardy. I mean, jeopardy isn't even, to me, it's like not even a strong enough word, but it puts millions of disabled people's lives in jeopardy in, at risk. So we do want CVS to withdraw the lawsuit. They can deal on the broader issue of what they believe they need to go forward with for whatever reasons. But for us, at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court hears this and rules against us as we are concerned, there will be an immediate impact on millions of disabled people. And that is what the disability community is fighting against. I'm going to ask you a little bit more there, Judy, because I think this is the most important piece, right? So if the Supreme Court agrees with CVS that the plaintiffs need to prove animus, right, or malintent, and not just disparate impact to move the case forward, as you were saying, it could completely unravel years of disability rights law. So tell us more about what the stakes are here. The stakes are disabled individuals losing rights that we have. I'm thinking about the word grown accustomed to, being able to see a light at the end of the tunnel where barriers will be removed, where we can envision continuing to move forward, to be able to be equal members of society for people with all kinds of disabilities, racial diversity, religious diversity, sexual orientation, et cetera, to really be able to see that these changes in our society are resulting in our ability, as I discuss it, to come to the table and break bread together. We are meeting people in a way that we didn't before. I do a lot of talking, you know, presentations, and a college student asked me the other day what I thought about segregated schools for disabled kids and segregated classes. Now, when the word segregated is used, the average person does not think about disability. They think about race. Right? But that's not what she was talking about. In those classrooms, there is racial diversity, but all the kids have disabilities. The accountability is not like the accountability for non disabled children. The point I was making earlier in my presentation with you was that when I was in on home instruction, getting two and a half hours of education, and then when I was in these segregated classes, whether we were learning, whether we were being taught what other kids were being taught was really nothing anybody looked at. And those are the kinds of things 
that these laws and others have resulted in barriers being removed. But still, we are dealing with people not understanding the real-life impact that the removal of Section 504 and also its potential impact on the ACA under 1557 will mean for us. But really, as one of the people involved with this major issue, my fundamental point is withdraw, and both sides can withdraw, because 504 is something that is relevant for at least 61 million people. And we can deal legitimately with the issues that have been brought against CVS. Those things can be discussed and continued to be negotiated. But Section 504 should not be the victim of this discussion. And Judy, you've so clearly um, just outlined for us what the stakes are here. This is the closest that we've ever gotten to seeing Section 504 and the Title II of the ADA and, of course, the ACA. This is the closest that we've been to seeing these possibly be able to be eliminated. And so thank you for laying out how serious this would be in terms of holding institutions accountable. You mentioned the accountability piece there and making it very clear. I want to underscore this. What we want from CVS, and as you said, kind of both sides of this, to be able to withdraw this so that these 61 million folks that we're talking about with um, people with disabilities are not going to be impacted in this way. What is one of the final things that you want our viewers to know about how serious this case is and what they can do? How can people get involved, Judy? I think disabled people need to be writing to CVS, letting them know their deep concern. They can go to different websites, the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, ACLU, the American Association of People with Disabilities, to see what others are doing. And I encourage people to get involved because our ability to be equal members of our community and our society overall, and as I was saying earlier, its impact around the world is not trivial. We need to take this as a serious threat. Judy, you have been a lifelong advocate and activist for disability rights, and we're so grateful for your work. But perhaps you can tell us, how did you find yourself here? And what was it that made you say, this is what I want to dedicate my life to doing? You know, it's not that I woke up one morning and said that. I think um, as I was getting older, really, when I was five and I saw my parents and what they were trying to do, it became very clear to me as I was getting older with my other friends who had disabilities that we wanted to live a life which looked more like the lives of many other people who didn't have disabilities. And we had a vision of how we wanted that to happen. And I think, you know, certainly when we were younger, we really did begin to solidify around the fact that we were not going to accept something lesser than what we believed needed to happen without a fight. And that's really when we look at Section 504 as an example and those regulations that we felt, okay, we have done what the system says to do. We've participated, we've compromised, we have reached our limit, we will do no more. And I love working, not just in the area of disability, but 
in the area of justice, removal of discrimination. And it's kind of something that I can't stop. (laughs) Because if I stop, that also means that I'm agreeing to stop advancing my own life. And uh, I'm not willing to do that. And I think it's been really exciting, although certainly these types of fights you really wish were not coming up. But at the end of the day, motivating the disability community and this community of allies to recognize what is at risk here is something that I think in the end we win on because it really requires that none of us become complacent, that we can't assume that something like 504, which has been around since 1973, we can't assume that it will remain here. Whether CVS intentionally or not put in 504 as one of the issues they proposed to the court to review, and that it was the only issue that the court has agreed to review, these are the adverse impacts that we are now faced with. Thank you for your your constant commitment. You know, Amber, I'm just like you. You're a Black woman, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. You know, park it at the door someday and say, ah, I'm finished with that. I'm done. Right, exactly right. right? Our rights don't stay won, right? And the fight doesn't stay won. So we have to keep on and press on. And even with what we've won, we're not where we want to be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We have to keep going. Thank you for that reminder, Judy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. And I had such a great time hosting At Liberty these past few weeks. I am so excited for you all to hear what's next. We've got Paige Fernandez, the ACLU's policing policy advisor on deck for next week, and you will not want to miss her. Until next time, keep fighting. We haven't come this far to only come this far.